Welcome to Stories of Emotional Granularity, a podcast that celebrates the full range of subjective experience. This winter, I've been feeling kind of thin. Until now, that is a specific emotional state that I have not yet included on the list of emotions that I'm compiling But it's the best word I can think of to describe what I have been feeling. To be thin is to not have much substance to spare. A thin thing is easy to poke through, and often is easy to see through as well. Thick things can become thin through inadequate nutrition or by being stretched or by being exercised. My thin feeling comes from this kind of stretched feeling, this sense of being strained by being pulled at. And, you know, recently I feel pulled in many different directions all at once, and I worry that there isn't enough of me to give adequate attention to any of those directions. And this is one of those cases where um, my physical uh, condition is not in accord with my emotional condition as um, I've been putting on a little bit of weight this winter, actually. Nonetheless, I feel thin. I feel thin, and that personal feeling, I think, is seeping into my podcasting. I'm slowing down. And I worry that I'm not going to be able to give the emotions of this podcast the attention that they deserve. What they deserve is a thick description. Let me explain to you what I mean by that phrase, thick description. Thick description is a term that the anthropologist Clifford Geertz used to describe an ideal kind of ethnographic research and writing. The goal of ethnography is to understand other people's cultural perspectives. And for Geertz, to do that thickly meant considering manifestations of culture from multiple perspectives, accepting that no single interpretation can be considered as even close to complete. Thick description involves putting singular theoretical perspectives in the company of people's own ideas about who they are and what they're up to, not allowing those singular perspectives to remain singular, thickening them up with other points of view. Thick description allows for competing models of what is really going on, acknowledging that there could be even more out there happening out of view. To achieve thick description, Clifford Geertz called upon ethnographers to look at their research subjects from different angles. And that's what I've tried to do with this podcast, but I'm warning you that this episode might feel a little bit thin in that regard. One of the ways that I try to achieve the thick description is by including the voices of several people talking about any given emotion, each from their own point of view. 
And this episode that you're about to hear is lacking in that multiplicity, featuring only one guest. Now, this admission of mine, that this is a thin episode, that fails to meet my own standards, this admission violates one of the unspoken cultural norms of podcasting, which is that a podcaster should edit out all of the glitches, the pauses, the awkward moments, the struggles. Most podcasters are attempting in some way to become influencers, and influencers are supposed to fake it till they make it. They always look fabulous, getting rid of any images in which they're less than fabulous, and they always sound in their voices, full of energy. And they only talk about their successes. This podcast is trying to be something different than that. It's about emotional authenticity. And so, instead of pretending to be thick when I'm really feeling thin, I want to let you in on what's really happening with me. I have enough experience and I know enough about myself to be confident that this thin phase won't last. I know that I'm not yet out of thick times to compensate for the thin, and so while things are thin, I would rather um, not pretend to be thick. I would rather make it uh, not at all than fake it. Still, I uh, admit that I also feel impatient with myself in this, and I want the thick times to come now. I yearn for a version of this podcast that I've held as an ideal in my mind for years now. I've held a sense of what this podcast ought to be, even though I have not yet attained anything close to that vision. It feels as if there is an ideal version of this podcast that already exists somewhere, somehow, if only in the form of its potential. A place in the universe of communication that I ought to be able to fill. I feel the reality of that space even though I've never been there. And I yearn to reach it, but it remains out of my reach. That's part of why I'm feeling thin. Now, those of you who have attempted to realize a vision may understand the feeling that I'm trying to describe. The Germans, it turns out, have a name specifically for this thing. They call it Sehnsucht. Sehnsucht is a specific kind of longing in which a person feels a sense of incompleteness while sensing that that thing could make them feel complete, and that, that it's out there, somewhere, hauntingly close, and yet elusive, just beyond our ability to grasp it. If only we could reach that thing, we would finally feel right. That's what philosophers and psychologists say about Zane Sukt, at least, they also say that there is no single word in English that effectively translates the full depth and complexity of what Zainsukt means. It's an untranslatable word, they say. 
Last week, I mentioned Tim Lomas and his book, The Happiness Dictionary, which explores the language of positive experience. In that book, Lomas writes that the etymology of Zainsukt implies an addiction or commitment to yearning itself, as opposed to pining for a particular person or thing. Lomas defines Zainsukt on the basics of a psychological survey as a, quote, diffuse general longing, a dreamy sense that life could be better than it is, unquote. Well, such may be the meaning of Zainsukt in the aggregate abstractly, but what does an example of this emotion look like in the context of an actual person's life? I have been trying to pierce this cultural mystery, but I only know a few of the most simple words in German, and I've been wondering whether what the psychologists and philosophers say about Zainsucht really matches the way that most speakers of German understand the word. So for the last three years, I've been looking for people who speak German who can explain Zainsucht to me. This quest has been an almost complete failure. Most people I know who speak German say that they aren't really sure what Zainsucht means. And, uh, and it, there is an exception to this, and you're about to hear from this person. Um, this person uh, is someone that you've heard from before, if you've been listening to this podcast from the start. Uh, their name is Lior Locker, and they were in the very first episode of this podcast back in the spring, talking about their experience of the emotion of Freeluftsliv as a child in the foothills of the Alps. Lior is also the only person I've been able to find who has been able to speak to me about the feeling of Zainsukt. And here's what they say about the time when they began to experience this feeling. I think for me, it was probably teenage years, maybe a little earlier. Mm -hmm. So this kind of yearning in English is obviously not the right word because we're talking about the differences, but this kind of wanting, you know, reaching out for something energetically, you know, it's kind of you're, you're in one spot and you see something over there or you have a hunch that something might be over there and you want to either extend yourself to get there so it does feel very stretchy and tuggy if that makes sense and it feels like you hope that that other thing will add something to your life maybe not necessarily complete you but be another really key puzzle piece that that adds something that you can't otherwise have and you don't know exactly what the puzzle piece is so Sehnsucht is not necessarily super specific. It's not like, you know, a pizza order or something like that. But you do, you do have this hunch that this thing you're, you're kind of after, you're having Sehnsucht for or person 
will will add something. I was struck by the way that Lior described Zane Sukt as something like a hunch. That seems to be one of the distinctions between Zane Sukt and more general feelings of yearning. With Zane Sukt, there is a sense of something that is on the edge of conscious awareness. It can be like remembering that you've forgotten something, but without being able to remember exactly what it is that you have forgotten. Another version of Zane Sukt can be the feeling that a certain place or object holds within it some potential for a better life, without understanding explicitly how that improvement might take place. Lior explains that the transformation sought under Zainsukt is in a sense something that is already in our hands if only we could realize how to activate it. In this sense, Zainsukt might be something like what Dorothy experienced in The Wizard of Oz, longing for the ability to get home when the ruby slippers that she needed to go home were on her feet the whole darn time. In that case, what Dorothy really needed was to go through the effort of her journey through the land of Oz. Getting what she wanted from the start would have deprived her of the growth that emerged from her struggles to find it. In this sense, Zainsukt evades direct tactics of problem-solving, because people in Zainsukt don't merely need to achieve their literal goals. That's not the only point. It's kind of like the statue in the movie The Maltese Falcon. Like that statue, our explicit objectives can turn out to be mere MacGuffins, things that compel us to begin a quest, providing us with a motivation, but discovering eventually that that quest is much bigger than what we at first comprehended. It's not actually about that object. It's about something bigger. It opens the door to something else. Lior explains something like this. For me, with Senzo, you're still in the same point where you started. So you're not looking to move yourself towards something. So, you know, like longing for me would be you're trying to get somewhere else. So you're moving from where you are as you're kind of chasing after the thing. Whereas for me, Sehnsucht, you're still here and the stretch comes because you're trying to get all the way to where the other thing is without actually moving. So it does kind of expand. And then it's almost about like you want to find it and bring it back and kind of reintegrate it rather than shifting from where you are and just running over to the other thing. Lior observes that in Zainsukt, the typical separation between the self and the outside world cracks apart. In Zainsukt, we come to realize that our efforts to reach some place or something or someone else is actually a way to reach some part of ourselves from which we have become estranged. Also, you can have Zainsukt 
for something you haven't met yet, but it feels like, you know, on some level, like sometimes you meet a person and you've met them for three minutes and you want to say, where have you been all this time? As if you'd always known them. And if, if you know, if it was just kind of temporarily a little bit misplaced. So I think Sehnsucht is a bit like that. I think on, on some level or some part of you, knows that that part should be closer or was closer or maybe in a different time in a different universe in a different I don't know was there and you want some of that back either it's an obvious trying to get something back that was there before in the sense of it was objectively there and now it isn't and you hope it'll come back or the person will come back Or it's almost like it's across different times and space where it feels like you're doing that even though objectively you don't sort of have any evidence in your life that that was together. But it feels like it kind of should have been. Zainzucht begins as a muddled sort of yearning. But once we reach the object of our Zainzucht, the experience can be mind-blowing. So... Lior gives a more concrete example that helps us to understand this in practice. The idea that they once had as a teenager in Germany, that living in London or Boston would enable them to become the kind of person that they always felt that they could be, is a form of Zainzucht. Before I was living in the UK and London specifically, I think London almost got a, became a representation for me for a group of friends or a group of people, a type of culture, a type of activity. So it almost became like a cluster of something. And I was kind of having Sehnsucht for that cluster. And then that became that. Became so I do have Sehnsucht uh, for Boston occasionally, and that is very much a mix of the people, some of the activities, the Cape, you know, like all, all kinds of like weird and wonderful random things. And they're not like each individual element wouldn't be big enough for a Sehnsucht, but all of them bundled together, I think, can be a Sehnsucht for Boston. I was there on a school trip at age 11 and it was the first place I'd been to where I never felt out of place. I felt it was such a diverse environment. There was so much happening culturally and, and it was just really, really exciting. I mean, to be fair, I've also like, this was one of the few big cities I've, I'd ever been in. And it just felt like there was going to be space for everyone, including me. And that feeling never really left. For Lior, London was something to yearn for before they even knew what London really was. Can anyone really know a place as large as the city of London, anyway, with all of the people that it contains? What Lior saw within London was a space that could accommodate who they wanted to become with a mix of people diverse enough to allow for whatever they might need to be, with room to move, to adjust, to settle, to try new things out. 
without knowing exactly what they're going to be ahead of time. This feeling of Zainsukt is something that Lior has felt personally, although they also acknowledge that there is an intellectual tradition embracing Zainsukt in Germany, not just among writers, philosophers, but also in music and in art. It's enough of a cultural thing that people will know what that is. Germany also has... It does have a, a deep romantic tradition. So if you, you know, if you read like Goethe and Schiller and, and, and all of that, so, you know, people, there were parts of, of history where it was quite common for people to sit together and read poetry to each other and cry and, you know, be a lot more emotional than what people stereotypically associate with Germany. I think Sehnsucht is also an interesting one because... It's culturally very appropriate in that it does have the depth, but it's also very internalized. So you can have Sehnsucht and people on the outside wouldn't necessarily see, you know, you're carrying that around with you or what the specifics are. So Sehnsucht is very much an inside job. I guess if you don't act and you just carry it as a romantic ideal and you just carry it in your heart, that's almost safer because then you'll never know how deluded you actually might have been because it never needs to face up to sort of the messy reality. And that definitely happens. You know, people idolize, idealize things without putting them to the test of reality. As I said before, I was not able to find another person from Germany to explain the emotion of Sehnsucht. But then searching for something that isn't within easy grasp is a big part of what Zainsucht is all about. And Zainsucht is itself kind of an object of Zainsucht for me. If I think about it, I wonder what it is that I expected to hear from a second or third German talking to me about what Zainsucht means to them and how they've experienced it in their lives. And I, I don't really know. I can't say specifically that there was something I was looking for. You know, every time I talk to someone about their emotional experiences, I have to prepare myself for surprises. And, you know, there are patterns and structures to emotion, of course, but our subjective feelings are as much about the exceptions as the rules. Zane Sukt does not fit in easily with the culture of online life and podcasting specifically. You know, we're, it feels like we're supposed to present ourselves as having something special to say, pre-packaged, like we know something that others would find to be a source of wisdom or they might be entertained by. This is the TED Talk influence on online culture. But this podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity, isn't a performance in that sense. I'm aiming more for authenticity than a communicative punch and polish. This podcast isn't about knowledge that's been obtained and secured. It's about exploring new territories where we cannot be certain at all about what we're going to find. I began this podcast about a year ago, a little bit less, in the springtime. 
without any definite sense of the emotional landscape that it would survey. I had a feeling that there was something worth exploring in looking at different emotions, but I didn't really know where I was going with that. You could say that this podcast is itself an example of Zane Sukht. I had this concept of the podcast that I knew I could attain, but the path to attain it was not at all clear. It was obliquitous. On the other hand, maybe I'm just being vague. Uh, Perhaps I'm just not sure where I'm going and maybe I'm not planning well enough. It could be that I just don't really understand Zane Sukht at all. And I want to leave myself open to that possibility. So, if you know the feeling of Zane Sukht and you feel that the coverage that I'm giving it here doesn't really tell the full story in an adequate way or it's somehow off the mark, Please don't just let that feeling fester. Get in touch with me and tell me about your Zane Sukht. Help me follow up with an episode, a second episode about Zane Sukht, that is thicker and more complete. I would love to do that. So please contact me if you're feeling like Zane Sukht deserves a thicker treatment. I feel a kind of Zane Sukht for Zane Sukht. And so, you know, maybe you can help me on this quest. But in the meantime, next week, I am going to be reviewing a smartphone app called How We Feel. It's one of many apps that claim to be able to help people examine their emotions scientifically. It's a curious proposition, and I've been trying out this app for a few weeks now. And I think I have enough experience uh, to say a couple of useful things about what it's doing and what it's not doing. Anyway, that's for next week. And it's not going to be a regular episode, once again, in which I am talking about a specific emotion, but rather about an app of emotions on your iPhone. Until then, thanks for listening.